Good morning. This morning we're going to be reading out of John chapter 7, uh, starting in verse uh, 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. And when they had heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is this the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The, officer, the officers then said to the chief priests and Pharisees, who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The, officer, the officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered him, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does, that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning that he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Morning, everybody. Uh, It's great to see everybody and uh, Happy New Year. I just realized that um, there's not a whole lot in this sermon that's tailored toward uh, the new year and new beginning and new you or anything like that. And so I'm sorry for that, but at the same time, we get, to, we get to come together and focus on Christ and focus on Him this morning. And what could be better for the new year than that? We walked through the Advent for the last five weeks, and it's a time where we get together to remember that heaven touched earth, like a time looking back at the first coming of Christ. And so it was a wonderful time within our church for many to rest, to take a breath, uh, to stop looking at ourselves and to look to Him. Uh, it was a time to praise God for sending God in the flesh to be born and to die, uh, to dwell among sinful man and to die to purchase our salvation. And so what a beautiful picture to purchase it with his blood and to free us from the curse of the devil to glorify God the Father. And it was a time to be in awe of the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. It's a time to look forward to his second coming when he's going to come again, when he's going to meet us in our destruction, and when he's going to glorify our bodies and raise us up, those who have believed in him, in order to enjoy him and his majesty forever. And just like the song says, uh, O holy night, chains shall he break, for the slave is our brother, and in his name all oppression shall cease. And so, and his power and glory will be evermore proclaimed. And so what an awesome time in our church family to walk through that. And now we have the privilege of jumping back into what, we've, what, we, went to, what we went through before in John chapter 7. And so just like Blake challenged you a few weeks ago as we were walking through this passage at the Feast of Booths, we need to be able to come into it and engage our senses this morning. Uh, we're at this situation in history where it's absolutely necessary for us to kind of try to put ourselves in that situation because otherwise... Otherwise, without doing this, you're going to miss out on some of the major implications of this text. You're going to miss out on some of the, uh, the more difficult things for us to see 
as to why these people are so divided, why the words of Jesus are so uh, compelling or impulsive to people. And so, and so let's get back to where we were uh, about five weeks ago. Uh, as we go back to chapter 7, verse 37, we're coming upon the last day of the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles. Which, uh, remember, the Feast of Tabernacles is one of the three major feasts that they're going to have. It's, uh, as Jewish people, you would have Pentecost, you would have the Passover, and then you would have the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. And so it was held around the month of October, and so it would be kind of in the fall, in our fall of the year. And so this was a time to look back and to celebrate the time when their ancestors, when Israel's ancestors had wandered in the wilderness for over 40 years. And so for 40 years, exactly, I'm sorry. And it was to celebrate God preserving the nation of Israel for him delivering his people into the promised land. That was the, that was the celebration here. Even in their unfaithfulness as a people, some were delivered into the promised land. Though they wandered and they rebelled, God was and is faithful to deliver them. And so that's what, they're, that's what they're celebrating with this. So they built these temporary structures built out of leaves and branches and stuff like that. And I'm just trying to cover this because I know it's been a little bit of time since we've, since we've been through this. But they would fabricate these structures out of their, outside of their normal dwellings. So they would, they would live outside of their houses for a week. And then everyone would congregate in or near Jerusalem when, that, when this was going on. So it was a big, big festival. And, and remember, this wasn't like a like a solemn get-together. This wasn't like a, oh, let's come together and let's praise God for, for who He is and then let's go home. No, this was a celebration. This was a party. It was, I mean, I mean that in every sense of the word. It was an all-out party and it was a joyful time to be in, in Jerusalem, to be a part of the nation of Israel. And so just as Blake described a few weeks ago, uh, the people would get up daily uh, in some of their rituals, some of the things that they would do they would get up daily and then they would bring branches uh, in as coverings over the altar. And so they would, they would pile their branches up as a covering over the altar. Then they would make their sacrifices. They would make a drink offering and then they would follow these things up with a water offering. And that's kind of where we are in this passage. That's the setting that's going on here. They're going to follow this up with a water offering. And so the high priest, he's going to take a golden pitcher and he's going to walk out of the, uh, out of the water gate and he's going to go to the pool of Siloam where he would fill his pitcher with water and then he would come back and pour that water over the altar. And that would be a, a symbol to remember God's provision of water out of the rock uh, when the people of Israel were wandering in the, in the wilderness. And so what a beautiful picture of, of what's going on here. And so I learned that, that uh, just in a, in a little bit more studying, that, that the people would actually, when... when when the high priest was coming back into the gate and when he was pouring the water out over the altar, the people would recite Isaiah 12, uh, verse 3. They would, and Isaiah 12, verse 3 says, With joy you would draw water from the wells of salvation. Then the people would sing the Hallel, which was the song of praise from the Psalms, from Psalm 113 to 118, praising God afterwards. And so what an amazing picture that this is. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. How closely associated to that is what Jesus says. Jesus is the fulfillment of that. And so this is a foreshadowing and looking forward into, into who Jesus is. So in the midst of all of this celebration and this, this occasion that, that historians would say, he who has not seen the water drawing has not seen joy. That's what historians would say about this. Uh, 
in the middle of all of this on the final day of the celebration called the Great Day. So the, the apex of this entire celebration, it's all coming together. Everything's, it's the last day and everything's kind of being celebrated. And then at the last, on the last day at the ultimate time, Jesus comes out and he says in verse 37 that we were looking at this morning, he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So he yells this at the top of his lungs in the middle of, in the middle of all this that's going on. And so with this statement, Jesus is drawing all the attention to himself, which is kind of probably unwarranted by a lot of these people. They, they really don't want this. They, they don't want to see this. And so this is you know, can you imagine being at this feast and expecting this traditional ritual to go on and, you know, you're, you're, reciting, uh, you're reciting Isaiah 12, 3, and then you're going through the Hallel, and then all of a sudden Jesus stands up in the middle of all of it and just completely blows everyone away. And he's been doing some pretty radical things from the beginning of his ministry. And then he gets up and completely turns this attention to himself. So this is going to produce totally different responses in people, Right? Like, this is going <laughs> to, there's, there's a reason why these people are so, uh, are so drawn, drawn apart from each other. And so when Jesus says, just like we talked about a few weeks ago, and he's going to say in verse 39, he says, when he says this, he says, if you come to me, if you trust in me, and if you cherish me, you're going to receive the Holy Spirit, who's going to produce rivers of living water within you. So our hearts can't do this on their own, right? That's what he's saying. They, they can't produce living water on their own. We need the Holy Spirit to step into our lives and to produce life in us in order to impart life on our behalf. Like that's, that's the only way that this is going to happen. And so he's only asking, the only, the only stipulation that he has, the only qualification there is, is that you're thirsty, that you come and drink. And so now let's look, let's look at the text that we're going to focus on this week and just kind of, uh, kind of walk, walk through that and we'll, and we'll see kind of what the responses are from, from the people at the feast. And so we've got three different categories of responses from the people and then we're going to see what I would like to call maybe the emphasis of the text in the center. And then on the back end, we're going to see three responses from the Pharisees based on what the people say. And so let's take a look at this. We got the first response from the people in verse 40. It says, when they, heard the word, when they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. So this refers to the words written by Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 through 18. He's talking about a prophet that's going to arise like himself. And he says, he says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. From your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of, my, of the Lord my God, or see this great fire anymore, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they've spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. So this first group of designated people that, that we're talking about here, they're going to they're gonna trust that Christ was the fulfillment of this prophecy, right? They're going to say that he was the prophet. And uh, if you notice, there's a, there's a capital P on there in this word prophet. 
And this is, this is used in chapter 6 also, uh, when they, right after, right after Jesus feeds the 5,000 and the people come to him and they say, surely this is the prophet. This is, this is the one. And so they come to him and Jesus flees because he fears that they'll try to take him over and make him become king. And so they'll try to force him to become king. So in this instance, uh, the, the capital letter, capital P, prophet, maybe did not uh, signify that they, they had believed and trusted him, that they had liked what he had said. And so it could be that, or it could also be that they are really convinced that this is him at this point, that he is the promised one, that he is the, pro- the, the ultimate capital P prophet that has come to fulfill, to fulfill who he is. Who, uh, what the scriptures say. And so that's the first group of people. People saying this is the prophet. And then you've got the second group of people, the second response that we're going to see in verse 41. It says, others said, this is the Christ. So some believe that he's actually who he claims to be, who he, who he says that he is, that he is, in fact, the promised Messiah for Israel, the one that's going to come to redeem mankind from Satan's tyranny, from the curse of Satan. So they believe that he is who he says he is, that, that he is exactly who he says he is. We can't, we can't really buy, tell by this text if they actually believe in him, you know, like, like the complete belief that we talked about, the notitia, ascensus, and fiducia belief that we talked about a few weeks ago. We can't, we can't tell from this passage if they truly believe in him or if they just believe the words that he said to be true, which is a completely different distinction. But by any means, they, they see his authority, and they're, and they're looking at him in that way. And so then we're going to see a third response that completely, uh, that completely counters these two. Uh, it's in the second part of verse 41, and it goes into verse 42. It says, But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the Scripture said that Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So when you, when you read this in Scripture, you can read this like, almost like mockery. Like they're, they're mocking the other, the other groups of people that say that, that, that say that he's the Christ, that say that he's the one. Like, like surely you guys can see this, right? Like we know that this man is from Galilee, but the Scripture says that the Messiah is to come from Bethlehem. So like what's, what's the deal here? They're quoting Micah 5.2 that says that he's going to come from the place of David. And that's surely not where this man is from. And so this shows us that the people are either, they're, number one, either truly they're uninformed that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, like they, they just don't, they don't know that he was born in Bethlehem, or they're willfully ignorant and they don't want to know the truth. And so one, one or the other, they, they are saying that, they're claiming that he was not born in Bethlehem. And so on that means they, they do what they've been doing since Jesus has been around. They reject him completely reject him, which is going to lead to their destruction, which is going to ultimately lead to that. So verse 43 sums it up. It says, so there was a division among the people over him. So there was division then. And if you've, if you've shared the gospel, or if you've tried to weave threads of the gospel into your conversations at, at work or at school or at, at your uh, different places that you hang out, or where you frequent, you're going to know that this is still the case today. People are divided by the words of Jesus. The words of Jesus, the claims of Jesus, his indictment on those who walk in evil, in legalism, in pride, these are going to cause division. So some people, moved by the Holy Spirit, 
are going to treasure the words of Jesus. They're going to be sanctified throughout their lives by, by his word, by, by what he says through his gospel. They may wrestle with it, but they're ultimately going to gladly submit to the claims that Christ has. And they're going to heed to any discipline that individuals or the church give them in Christ. Empowered by the Holy Spirit only. And some, sadly enough, are going to mock his words. Or they'll just consider them little tidbits of knowledge or good tips or to achieve your full potential or good advice. They're going to consider his claims completely outrageous, unattainable, ridiculous. And they're going to consider his indictments intolerant and unwarranted as they carry on toward death apart from Christ, which, which should grieve us. It should make us sad. But the beauty of it all is that God, in his mercy, has called some of us to call upon his name, to be saved through him. But not only that, that he's chosen mankind as vessels through his Holy Spirit to bring about life to others, to bring the gospel to those who are perishing. So uh, in, in verse 37 again, he says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So the Holy Spirit produces in us streams of water, right? In order for us to fill, fulfill our deep thirst that we need to be able to survive and, and to be able to have life. But then also pour that life through the Spirit into others, right? It doesn't say a reservoir or a pond or a lake or something that, something that holds in water, but rivers, something that flows. So rivers of living water will be produced in our hearts. So this is encouragement, right, to press on, to walk with others around you that are in hardships and in, and in tough times, and ultimately to proclaim the name of Christ boldly, which is something that's difficult for us to do a lot of times if we, if we have to say so ourselves. So some are going to reject him, but some will be eternally satisfied and will enjoy him forever. And that's, that's what we're here to do. That's our mission. That's our goal. So in verse 44... Uh, moving on through the passage, we see uh, some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. So Jesus says these things, and so they send people to arrest him, right? So this was one of the many times when they wanted to take Jesus, but it's very clear that, that just like always, he is in complete control of the situation. He is in control, and nothing is going to happen apart from, his, apart from God's timetable. That he laid down his life on his own accord when he wanted to lay down his life. He said that no one was going to take it from him, but that he would lay it down on his own accord, not a moment before. And so verse 45 gives the account of those who were sent, uh, who were sent by the chief priests and the Pharisees to arrest Jesus. And I believe that this should kind of, this is going to kind of be where we, where we sit today, where our focus is going to be. And uh, because it's, a, it's just an amazing text that we're going to see next. Verse 45 says, The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? And the officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. No one ever spoke like this man. So let's get it straight. These were men, right? These were temple, these were temple priests who had a specific purpose, who had a job to do. Their only job to do, that they were sent by the people with the most authority and most influence over their daily lives, the Pharisees. They're sent by the Pharisees and the chief priests in order to fulfill one job, 
these people could not only remove them from their jobs, but had enough influence to allow them to not, be, to not take part in corporate worship in the temple in things that are crucial to, to an Israelite and things that are crucial to the people that are there. And so ultimately, they could probably take their lives if they wanted to. They could probably end their lives. And so all they want them to do is go arrest this troublemaker, Jesus, that's causing all these problems, right? So following their duties, they go off to arrest him, and then they come back completely empty-handed. Like, what the heck? Where, where, are, the, where are they? Where is he? So instead of making any excuses that would probably save their lives at this point, or blaming the crowd or the, or the density of the people, like, oh, look, there's a lot of people in here. Like, it, it, could, have been, it could have been really bad for us and for you. You know, instead of, instead of making an excuse like that, like, oh, the, we, we, can't, we couldn't get to him because the, dense, the crowd was so dense and, and we couldn't, uh, you know, it would have really caused a, a bad thing on your name if, if, that, if we would have actually done it. No, they didn't say anything like that. So instead of trying to, to point it to something else or to make an excuse, the only account that they could give at this point was that no one ever spoke like this man. So isn't that amazing? Like, like why, why do they say this? Because, and I believe it's because, among many other things, they recognize the authority with which Jesus spoke when he spoke. And so what do I mean by that? Like, he speaks with such authority that the authority of those in power over the guards that were, sent to, that were sent to arrest Jesus, the authority of those people, the Pharisees and the chief priests, it just pales in comparison. These men are absolutely in utter, utter shock and amazement at the fact that Jesus spoke the way that he did and said the things that he said, more importantly. And so we know Jesus spoke very influentially, he had knowledge that surpassed anyone, and he was very intelligent. But I think what John mainly wants us to see, just from the context of this scripture, as the reason for this division in the text, and, and the amazement of the guards, and the amazement of what's going on, is how unique and powerful the claims of Jesus Christ are. The claims that he made are so unique and so powerful that it divides people. So remember... Uh, you thought I wasn't going to say it, but I'm going to say it again. We're going to say it every week. Remember, John's purpose for writing the gospel, right? I, we should probably just like say it all together. But uh, chapter 20, verse 30 through 31. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name, right? So it doesn't satisfy John for you to know that Christ was a sinless man who was a great orator and gave wonderful sentiments to live by, right? He wants you to know that he is God in the flesh that has come to save man, to redeem man, to take the penalty for sin on our behalf, to be reconciled with, so that we can be reconciled with the God of the universe, to live praising him forever. That's what he wants us to see here. He's the one that has such authority that it causes men sent with a purpose to become so amazed that they abandon their allegiances and they say, no one ever spoke like this man. No one ever spoke like this man. So I want to share uh, just a little, a little excerpt. I was going to try to maybe summarize it, but I, I think it's better the way that he puts it. Uh, John MacArthur has a sermon that he preached in 2014 called Embracing the Claims of Christ. 
and it summarizes some of the some of the claims that Jesus made and some of the things that he said that were just so amazing and outlandish. Uh, let me let me just read it to you. It said Jesus said that he had come down from heaven, that he had eternally existed, that he had been sent into the world by the Father. He claimed to be the Savior of the world and the only Savior of the world. He claimed to be the determiner of everyone's eternal destiny. He claimed to be the source of everlasting life and the only source. He claimed to be the only way to God. He claimed to have the right to be honored and worshipped on an equal basis with the eternal God. He claimed to be one with the Father. He claimed to have the power to give life and even to raise the dead. He claimed to be able to raise himself from the dead. He claimed to be the one of whom the Old Testament scriptures spoke and the one who was the main subject of the Old Testament. Wow. He claimed to be the supreme judge of all men who would one day judge them all at this returning glory. He claimed to be without sin. He claimed to have all authority in heaven and earth. He claimed to be able to forgive sins legitimately, to have both the power and the authority to do that. He claimed to rule over the Sabbath. He claimed to have the right to answer prayer. He claimed to be greater than the temple, greater than Jonah, greater than Solomon, greater than Jacob, greater than Abraham. He claimed to have been alive before Abraham even was born. He claimed to be the only source of soul sustenance, the only bread that could feed the soul. He claimed to be the light of the world. He claimed to be the resurrection and the life. He claimed to be the anointed one, the Christ, the Messiah, claimed to be the Son of God. He claimed that he had the privilege and one day would enter into that privilege of being seated at the right hand of God to reign forever. This from a man who was physically, by appearance, indistinguishable from any other Galilean man. These claims were just beyond comprehension. And so we see why, why there's so much conflict here. Like why these men were so amazed and why the Pharisees were so repulsed by Jesus. Because he didn't leave room for people to say that, that he was just a good guy. That he, that he said some really good things and that he was a great moral teacher. Uh, David quoted this a few weeks ago, so I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time here. But I, I want to quote C.S. Lewis again. Uh, it's perfect for this, for this passage. I feel like it fits perfectly. Uh, in his Lord, liar, or lunatic explanations, he said we can't call Christ merely a good moral teacher. He says, a man who said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. He's either all of it or he's none of it, and we have to choose that. He's either a lunatic or he is the Lord that he says that he is. So believers, when we look at, when we look at Scripture... Are we looking at it as, as a guidebook to life, as God's, uh, <laughs> I like this one, as God's playbook for us to achieve maximum potential? Or are we isolating passages in order to get a little nugget of wisdom from Jesus uh, to help us to be better people? Or are we reading it as God's redemptive story, revealing to us and pointing out 
that God in the flesh, the hope of all humanity, the source of living water came to save us. So I pray today that Christ is not the means to an end in your life, that he's not the means to something else, but that he is the end in which we seek. And so, and so now we're going we're gonna to look in, into how the Pharisees, how the, how the people how the Pharisees respond to the people who have made these claims about Jesus, mainly the people who have made the claims that he's, that he's the Christ or, or have seen some great things about Jesus. So first we're going to look at the response to the officers. So the officers go, they, they can't arrest Jesus, they come back, and they say, no one has ever spoken like this man. And the Pharisees respond in verse 47 and 48. They say, the Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? So they respond with a sense of false pride and loyalty, right? Like, it's almost as if to say, like, are you serious? Like, you, you can't really believe what these people, what, what, what this man is telling you. Like, you can't really believe that. Like, hasn't he led you astray too? Like, he's led you astray too, hasn't he? So you're loyal to us, right? The Pharisees speaking to, speaking to them. Like, you're loyal to us. Have you seen any of us believe in him? We're the ones that are educated, the ones who are the leaders. Like, have you seen any of us believe in him? I, I don't think so. Then why, why, are you, why are you believing in him? So they're so caught up in their prideful nature that they call these men out to be deceived. They say that they're deceived by Jesus Christ. They're so caught up in themselves that they indict them on that. Now, how are they going to write off the crowds, right? Because the crowds said good things about Jesus too. The crowds, the crowds said that he, was, that he was the prophet and that he, was the, uh, that he was the Christ, right? And so how are they going to write them off? So the people that are calling him the prophet and the Christ, in verse 49 it says, but this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. So not only are these men being deceived, but the crowd is cursed. They've been cursed they write off this entire group of people of low lives. These are low lives who don't know the law and are therefore cursed by God because they don't know the law. And so they're the elite. The Pharisees are the elite, and they're the only ones that are not cursed. They're the only ones that get it right. That's what they believe. So the guards are deceived. The people are cursed. And now we're going to see somebody else come into the picture from a while ago. We're going to see Nicodemus again. In verse 50, we see Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. So you remember Nicodemus, right? Uh, just a little review uh, for those of you who don't remember. From John chapter 3, uh, he comes to Jesus in secret. He's a Pharisee. He comes to Jesus in secret. Uh, he knows that, he says, that, says he knows that Jesus is a teacher from God, and Jesus tells him that immediately that, he mu- that anyone who wants to be born again, who wants to see God must be born again into the kingdom of God. And he says, uh, so to be born again, do I need to get back into my mother's womb? Like, how does that work? I don't really understand what's, what's going on here. And Jesus goes on to reveal the gospel to him. And, and that includes the famous uh, John 3.16 proclamation, for, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And so now, so he goes on to reveal the gospel to Nicodemus and then Nicodemus kind of disappears. And now he, he shows back up in chapter 7 a few years later. And we're going to see him in this scripture again. So we have to assume 
he's in search of the truth. So he's going to speak up to the rest of the Pharisees, right? Like he's still searching for that truth. He's, he's heard what Christ has said. He's had a lot of time to digest that. And so now he's, he's searching for that truth. And so he, wants, he just wants him to, him to be able to go through the given due process that any person of Israel would, would receive. Like just give him a trial, right? He wants the Pharisees to play by their own rules. He wants them to give him a trial and to give him the, the opportunity to be able to defend himself. And he probably wants to defend Jesus too because I think he's probably convinced that he is who he says he is at this point. Uh, there's no way to really know that in this text, but uh, it's not completely evident at this time, but, but why else would he speak up against the Pharisees like that? So he speaks up. And how do they respond? They say, you must be born from the same place that he is. That's the only way that you would defend this man. The only way that you would defend him is that you must be born in the same place. You must be kin to him. Because I don't know where your allegiance lies, but, but there, would be, there would be no other way that you, would, that you would defend him. So they're accusing him of being biased toward Jesus without any regard for what is true. Just because, of, just because they think he may be related to, to him or from the same area as him. And so can you see the, the irony in these accusations? Like they're accusing these people. The Pharisees diagnose the officers as being deceived the crowds is being cursed, and Nicodemus is having a blind loyalty to Christ, just being blindly loyal to him. And so in reality, it should be evident to us that their diagnosis, their indictment of these people actually, excuse me, actually reflects their own diagnosis more than anything. It reflects who they are. So they have been deceived by their own prideful and arrogant nature They had been cursed in their legalistic living apart from God, apart from His promise, trying trying to live without without being able to see Christ. And they were biased toward viewing the Scriptures so selfishly that they could not see that at this point everything was pointing to Christ. Everything in the Scriptures was pointing to Christ. And so, with that being said, we can see the Pharisees' fault here, but I I want to be careful. So like if we're Christians here today in this room and we're coming out from it saying, well, at least I'm not like those people. At least I'm not like the Pharisees. You know, they're the ones that are rejecting Jesus. Then we've, we've kind of missed it because Scripture says that we are all like those people, that we, that we took part in the same thing. Maybe not at the same time period, but we took part in the same thing. In Ephesians 2, uh, verses 1 through 5, if you remember when we went through Ephesians as a church, Paul says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Amen? And so praise be to God that he has allowed us to see Christ correctly. Praise be to God that when we were thirsty, Christ said, come and drink. That we love to puff ourselves up and that we love to wallow in our own self-pity and in our sensuality and in the sins that bind us daily but that the Holy Spirit replaced our stone hearts with hearts of flesh and that he allows us to enjoy the riches of his glory. That's only by his doing. That is not by our own. 
And so if you're someone today who, uh, who calls yourself a believer in Jesus, someone, someone today who says, you know, I believe in the claims of Jesus and I believe in him as my Savior, are you submitting to Jesus in a manner that, that reflects that in your life, that he is who he says he is? Because if he is God in the flesh, if he is the bread of life that fulfills our hunger, if he is the living water that quenches our thirst, the one that brings us fullness, then we should be able to entrust our entire lives to him, right? Like we should be able to give that over to him. So how are you doing with this? I'm, I'll say this personally. Uh, throughout, the, throughout the Advent season, it's been kind of difficult for me because since the time that I heard the first sermon and, and everything else afterwards about rest and about having peace in this season and enjoying the looking forward to the coming, uh, to, to Christ's second coming and looking back at his first coming, I, I've been extremely convicted because the more I heard about that rest, the busier I made myself. The more, the more I wanted to do, the more I stressed and the less I cherished the celebration of Christ. I'm just, I'm just being real with you guys. Like that, that was something that this season in my life has been, has been difficult because I've made it that way. And so even when I wasn't at work, I was, I was stressed out doing stuff. Like I, I, was, I was still stressed out. I even tried to take a few days off of work to try to, to, try to you know, kind of unwind before Christmas and, and you know, and it, it didn't work. I think I made myself even more stressed out in those days than I was when I was actually at work. And this is directly from a lack of trust that Christ is who he, said, who he says he is. And so this was refreshing for me this week to be able to see this, to be able to look at all of the claims that Christ made and, and to be able to say like, okay, I, I trust in those. Like I, I cherish Christ for who he is and for who he says that, that he is. You know, and so my flesh was clouded by my ability. My flesh took over and I, and I was completely clouded, but I didn't have, I wasn't looking clearly. I couldn't see Christ in that. And so how are you doing? Uh, does your daily posture, does it reflect that Christ sits on the throne? And if not, uh, one, of my, one of my friends actually told me this. Uh, this is a question that you should constantly ask yourself. What lies are you believing that are keeping you from seeing him for who he really is? Like what lies are we believing that, that keep us from cherishing Christ as the savior of the world, as the bread of life, as the living water that gives us hope? Okay, and so if you're believers, I ask you those questions. And if you're someone who, who doesn't know Christ and who may, who may be even on the fence about the whole Jesus situation, if you're listening to this or if you're in this room, and, and if you're one that would consider Jesus' words important words to live by, but you don't know if you can give your life completely over to that. You don't know if, 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 that's, if you could submit to him completely. I would pray and hope that you would consider the radical claims that Jesus has made, as well as the testimony of the men that encounter him, that come, in, that come in contact with him every day, that say no one ever spoke like this man, and that you would recognize that you're thirsty, that you need water, and that you would go to Christ for a drink and be satisfied in a way that absolutely nothing on this earth can possibly satisfy you. So as I say that, let's pray. Father,